John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, Todd. How hello, are you John. Today? I'm doing okay. All right, here we are in November, and you're out in sunny California, and I'm freezing here in New England. So Something. sunny, I had to close all the shades in this room. Otherwise, I'd be uh, lit up like uh, nothing else. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm supposed to feel bad? <laughs> I want you back here suffering like the rest of us. Well, I looked at the uh, temperature today, and yes, I'm uh, glad I'm not suffering at the freezing or near freezing temperatures. Cool out here, but not that cool. When I went out this morning, it was 17 degrees. Out she want mama. Yes, it was. It was chilly, and I wasn't dressed for it either. So until the, until the vehicle warmed up, it was painful. Well, anyway, we got a very interesting uh, accident to talk about today. And it's right up your alley because you are a drone expert. And Indeed. We have, and we have a, uh, a drone and a helicopter that try to operate within the same real estate in the air. And boy, that when I read through this report, the mistakes or the violations are just, I mean, if, you, if the FAA were writing uh, LOIs on this one, they'd be writing for days. There's so many problems with it. Well, with the, before we get into the, uh, how should I say it, the uh, comedy of errors in this event, uh, my background with drones, back in 2016, the FAA had a, a new license for uh, commercial drone operations under what's called Part 107. And I went ahead within days, I got the license uh, squared away, which is basically gives you the right to operate a drone for commercial purposes. This was an outdoor road race involving motorcycles, four-wheel vehicles, and whatnot. They had two sets of aircraft, helicopters and UAVs or drones, taking uh, videos of, of the affair. And then uh, getting back to the Part 107 bit, if you're operating it for commercial purposes, you, the drone operator, will be standing in some location, and you can operate the drone up to 400 feet in altitude and no more than 400 feet away. In other words, you have to keep the drone relatively close within visual line of sight at all, all, at all times. In this particular case, you had the drones and the helicopter both operating at very low levels. And uh, the drone was taking videos, which one video is part of the public docket. And those of you looking at the video 
version of this podcast will be seeing this now on the screen. As you can see, there is a vehicle in the foreground racing along, and the drone is taking videos, and you see a helicopter in the frame. At some point in this, the helicopter leaves the frame. Now, keep in mind, this is a situation where this operator happened to be at least 1,000 feet away from the location when this happened by his own admission and by the NTSB's analysis. And then you see the helicopter come back into the screen very briefly right before there's a midair collision. Now, the uh, helicopter fortunately had very minor scratches and whatnot and was able to keep flying. The drone, of course, hit the, hit the deck and they were able to get the video off of it. And the thing about this is the operator was so far away, the only way he could see what's going on is through his uh, monitor, which has a fairly narrow field of view. And I'm not the greatest pilot in the world, but I do know this. Even in the smallest airplanes that I fly, I have fairly good field of view, left and right, up and down. Not total, not 100%. But if there were aircraft in the vicinity, and if I only had this sort of narrow window that you get with the kind of uh, drone this person was operating, it's very difficult to see what's going on when something leaves the screen. As you can see from the video, the helicopter leaves the field of view. The UAV operator didn't do anything to swerve left or right or slew the camera left or right to, to acquire the helicopter again. This person kept following the vehicle on the road while the helicopter, which by the way, you might see if you look closely, passed very, very close over a ridge. You can tell by the shadow under the helicopter that this helicopter was not far from uh, passing over the top of this ridge, which is another safety issue that's not covered in this accident report. So in the end, the analysis was it was the fault of the drone pilot. Let me look, read exactly what the NTSB said, and this will form the basis of why we have some issues with it. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable causes of this incident to be the failure of the small UAS and remote pilot to give way to the helicopter, resulting in an in-flight collision. Contributing to the incident was the SUAS, small uh, unmanned uh, aircraft system, remote pilot's failure to assess and mitigate the risk of operations in close proximity to other aircraft. Also contributing to the incident was the lack of inclusion of the SUAS operations as part of the aviation activity and risk mitigation. So let's break down that last part. The organizers of this road race had a meeting with the helicopter pilots. I believe there are five helicopter pilots and four UAV pilots um, where they talked about, here's the map, here are the uh, procedures we have. There was even a common radio frequency for them to discuss things over the air. The UAV pilots, the drone pilots, were not invited to this organizational meeting. They were not given any capability to have air-to-air -air or air-to-ground communications with the helicopters. So one group, the helicopter pilots, had some means to coordinate and communicate. The other group, the UAV pilots, did not. Also, the organizers uh, did not uh, see fit to separate these two um, for, for obvious reasons. Now, UAV, under Part 107, you can't fly your drone higher than 400 feet above ground level. So, uh, you know, going forward after the accident, the organizers say, well, you know, in the future, we'll have the helicopters 500 feet and above and the drones 400 feet and below. In this particular race, though, that was not the case. They were in the same spaces. Now, the NTSB also said 
the failure of the remote pilot to give way to the helicopter. Practically speaking, it's difficult for two aircraft of a similar size to see each other, even if they're relatively close to each other in the sky. When you have one that's the size of a helicopter and the other that's the size of you know, a medium-sized drone, I think it was a two-pound drone or something like that, it can be extremely difficult to see this, especially at low altitude if the background might have ground clutter in it. And you're trying to pick up the, the flying drone amidst the ground clutter as you yourself is trying to maneuver a helicopter in close proximity to the ground, as you see from the video we showed earlier, very close proximity to the ground. So yes, the UAV pilot did not give way, but also yes, uh, the organizers didn't see this as an issue before this happened. Didn't see this as a possibility that you have helicopters, which have been flying for decades, and drones, which have only been operating commercially at this point for roughly four years before this happened. There's a whole lot more knowledge base in the flying community when it comes to flying helicopters and it comes when it comes to flying uh, the kind of drones that were used in this uh, particular accident. So. I'm bothered. I'm bothered by the fact that the helicopter pilots were aware that there were going to be drones flying, but yet they chose to fly down close to the ground. And because they weren't part of the organizational meeting, they couldn't express the fact that, you know, we're going to be at 400 feet or below and you guys need to stay above that. And just from what, what's in the video, uh, it's clear that they were not uh, staying above 500 feet. I wonder if they had an exemption to fly the way they were below 500 feet uh, for the purposes of filming, which would not be unusual for them to get an exemption like that. But uh, there's no mention of that in the report. You know, and here we go again with, with lots of information that's not, has not made its way into the report. It makes it very difficult to, to uh, get all the safety issues on the table so that other people can work on them to uh, prevent future accidents. Filming at low altitude with helicopters, that's been going on for generations. I seriously doubt that if there was an application, they said, oh, by the way, we'll also have drones in the same vicinity as a, as a helicopter, that that exemption would have been granted because that just doesn't make any sense. Right. Now, uh, you gave uh, some insights as to the investigator in charge here. Uh, you were saying that this person is one of the uh, uh, drone experts, as it, as, it, as, it, as it were, with the current crop of NTSB investigators. And yet uh, there's nothing in the public docket, nothing in the report that indicates that there was a, an awareness that there are a lot of issues with respect to the operating of the drones that should have been addressed. Now, one of the recommendations um, that was uh, given uh, elsewhere was that perhaps this uh, UAV operator could have used a visual observer. And going back into the Part 107 regulation, there are three distinct roles that are mentioned in Part 107. The pilot in command, the person operating the aircraft, the drone, and a visual observer. Now, there always has to be a pilot in command. The other two are option. You can have one person performing all three roles at the same time. And typically, if you go out and get your DJI drone from wherever and you fly it in your backyard and you were doing Part 107 uh, operations, if you're doing it alone, you're doing all three roles. Perfectly okay. A visual observer 
allows the person flying the drone to focus on the uh, actual flying of the aircraft and have the other person focus on hazards that are out of the field of view, hazards that can't be seen through the lens of the camera, and other hazards that uh, the pilot in command is too busy to look at because they're piloting the aircraft. So uh, I didn't, no mention I didn't, of that. Was, say again? I didn't see any reference to whether or not they were flying the drone in first-person view. There was no direct reference of that. It was implied for two, two reasons. One, it was, the, the operator was 1,000 feet away. And 1,000 feet away, having flown aircraft like this of that size, it's a dot on the horizon. And only if it's against, let's say, a blue background of the plain sky or, or, or white cloud. If the background is any kind of terrain, it's almost impossible to pick it out at that distance. And in order for this person to follow the moving vehicle, it makes sense that rather than being at a horizontal distance of a thousand feet, that they're looking through the lens, first person view, as it were, flying and uh, taking pictures at the same time. Yeah, for those who don't know anything about drones, first person view is a pair of goggles that uses the camera lens on the drone. So that's what you're seeing is what the camera sees. And you're flying it around chasing, in this case, a vehicle on a road, but you're not seeing the, the rest of what's going on. And that's why the, the observer becomes so important because the observer is gotta be talking to the person with the goggles on, telling him of you, you know any obstacles coming up or if he's getting, in this case, getting close to the helicopter or whatever, birds chasing him, you know? Now, I don't know the setup of this particular um, drone, but uh, on the simpler ones, including some of the fairly sophisticated DJIs, this is your controller, and you're using your screen on your on your smartphone to look and see what's going on as you're manipulating the controls. And again, you can see a whole lot in this little screen, but not enough to avoid a helicopter. Well, we've discussed the video and even shown it, I think, at least a couple times already in this uh, video broadcast. What I'd like to do is to show it on the screen live, and we can comment on some of the things that we found uh, interesting or at least uh, disturbing about this. And... This video is also on the uh, public docket, and we have a version of this video available on the uh, a link to it on the page uh, to this site. And you can see from the still picture here, there's a vehicle in the foreground, and both the helicopter and the drone were following this vehicle as we start the video. And there's no sound to the video, so the only sound will be uh, our lovely voices. Let's go back to the beginning. It's only about 40 seconds long. Here's the vehicle, much closer shot. As you can see, this is a desert environment, a hilly environment as well. And as it starts, the drone is obviously fairly close behind. You'll see the helicopter over on the right side. Let's uh, move our, on the right side, you see the helicopter also at low altitude, roughly the same altitude as the drone, somewhat ahead of the drone. Now, uh, you'll see very closely, if you look, that the helicopter is going toward the ridge. You see the shadow of the helicopter. You can tell by the shadow, it's a very close approach to that ridge. It's now out of sight completely of the drone operator. Drone operator is making no sudden movements away from the vehicle, still following the road and the vehicle. As you can see, there's a midair collision. And obviously the camera survived. Now I'm gonna rerun it again. And tell me what stands out in your mind based on what you see here. 
Well, I think he had it right. The drone is following behind, getting the shots. The helicopter was waiting for the vehicle to come up. Then he goes over the hill, and he obviously had to turn and come back down to this road to interface with the collision. Now, did he know that the drone was following it? In my opinion, no, and I'll tell you a little bit why. Um, Typically, the pilot's sitting on the right side of the aircraft. So as you see here, as the uh, helicopter comes into the frame on the right, the left side of the helicopter is pointing toward vehicle. I don't know if this was a camera person who was on the left side, but typically the pilot is on the right side of the helicopter. Now, the reason I think this is as the helicopter gets closer to the ridge, the right side of the helicopter is closest to the ridge. If the pilot's sitting in the left-hand side of the left seat, it would have been more difficult to get a close view of the terrain that's coming up. So based on that, in my opinion, there was a pilot on the right side of the aircraft, and the pilot would have been paying attention not to the, well, to, obviously to the vehicle, but also to the hazards that are out there. Also, if you're in the right side of this aircraft, the drone is obviously behind you and to the left. Even if the pilot turned his or her head completely around over their left shoulder, they would have had to look through the helicopter to see the drone. But, you know, one of the things of this also, I didn't notice this before, but that helicopter had to come right back down over that ridge. Because initially, when you looked at it, it looked like he was going to go over the ridge and catch the vehicle as it came by on the other side. But he didn't. He, but he doubled back, essentially and ran down over that ridge. So it's, it, uh, it, he's, he's behaving like he has free reign. Right? He has absolutely no concern about anything else except trying to get his shots. And maybe the cameraman was telling him what to do. In fact, initially when, I, when the, you started that video, it, it looked like that uh, truck, that racing vehicle, was going to go up the ridge. But then suddenly he took the turn to the right, which the trail that trail must have been mocked. I didn't see any, but it must have been. Now, this video clip was only about 30 seconds long, but it was chock full of information and it raised a bunch of questions. And that's one of the fortunate things about this. Typically, in an, in an incident like this, when you have a midair collision, you don't have any kind of video or still pictures from the ground or from the involved aircraft. In this case, you have a very, very good steady video from one of the involved aircraft. And was there something that the NTSB or other investigators could have gleaned from this that could have been put into the report? In my opinion, yes. Um, I don't know if there were sanctions given to either the helicopter pilot, the drone pilot, or the organizers, because the NTSB doesn't list those sorts of sanctions or penalties, fines, etc. But certainly this is something where if there was not some sort of you know, infraction here that was noted and acted on by the FAA, I'd be very surprised because there are a whole bunch of things about this, which I found, uh, you know, highly hazardous and specifically with respect to Part 107, outside of the regulations. Right. Well, I sure wish they had put all that detail in the report. They should have gathered it. And I guess that's what we've been talking about for the last several years, that the report's coming from the mid-teens, you know, and I don't know exactly when. Was it 13, 15, 17, somewhere in there? The, the quality, the detail quality in the reports 
started to diminish. Now, in fairness to the NTSB, they've had been level funded for a number of number of years. And what that means, everybody, if you get the same budget year after year after year, but your salaries and expenses are going up with inflation and rest of it, that's essentially a budget cut. Right. And that's and that's what the the current chairman and the past chairman have bemoaned about was that their budget was going down. And yet they keep trying to do uh, the, the, a high volume. And I think maybe they should have been looking at reducing the number of accidents that they go do themselves and keep the quality up and let the FAA do the ones that uh, they determine uh, that they're not going to do a full report on. They are doing some of that, but I think they needed to do more of that to keep the quality of their reports up. Because now what we're hearing and what I've been hearing for, for a long time now is the industry folks, academic folks, everybody that's been using NTSB reports for some sort of uh, safety data mining are complaining that the detail's not there. So it's uh, it, it really is a tragedy if the, that quality is falling off. And, and beyond the details, it's uh, reasonable questions that a reasonable person would ask that isn't that have not been asked and answered by the documentation we see from the NTSB. And before I go on, I want to put up a couple of corrections. I said I wasn't sure if there were two people in the helicopter. The final accident report, the incident report, rather, it's not an accident report, says there were two people, a passenger and a pilot in the helicopter. So like you were saying, John, left hand seat or left side of the helicopter very likely was a photographer or videographer of some sort. And another question that, uh, not necessarily an issue, but it certainly got my attention. It said that the pilot of the helicopter was a commercial pilot, no problem there, had 4,200 hours of all aircraft models, no problem there, and that this person was 20 years old. This person must have been a real go-getter, getting their license at the earliest possible time and basically flying for a living while they were a teenager to get 4,200 hours. Now, I'm assuming that those numbers are, are right. So if this person is 20 years old and has this kind of skill to fly that close to the ground, hats off to this person. But if I were an insurance company, I'd say, you know what, fly it a little higher. Well, that, that's amazing, 4,200 hours at 20 years old. You know, it's got to be 16 to start. Yep. So four years, 1,000 hours a year. Oh, that's a staggering amount. That's 100 hours a month almost. 80 so hours, right? 80 hours a month. That's commercial time. Whoever this person is, again, hats off to your dedication. I do hope that uh, you have a... Uh, a good career ahead of you. And uh, again, this uh, mid-air collision, uh, I'm not going to leave this on the fault uh, on the shoulders of the helicopter pilot as much as I do on the organizers of the event. And that uh, there was a lot of moving parts here and those moving parts should have been more separate from one another, which uh, brings us into our uh, next to last word, I believe, because uh, reading through this and talking about it with you, uh, the thing that just jumped out at me was flying, especially in a commercial environment, and especially when there's other entities involved who may not be in the flying business like you are, uh, they may not be aware of the hazards that you're aware of as a natural course of what you do. They may not be aware of what you're doing. Sounds great, 
but that might be a little bit risky. This is the opportunity if you're in any part of the system, as the organizer, as a UAV pilot, as a helicopter pilot, to speak up and say, hey, this doesn't look right. I mean, if you've had 4,200 hours flying, you've had a lot of experience flying around a lot of people. And if you're only 20 years old, you probably had experience flying around people who are more mature than you, who might have the authority, more authority than you, and think they know more than you. But hey, if you have 4,200 hours, you know some things. Speak up and speak up loudly. Yeah, that's a staggering amount of time for a 20-year-old. Yeah, but you know, one of the things that was going through my mind as you were talking is we've done a number of, of uh, medevac helicopters where there's a, a, a nurse usually on, on the helicopter with a single pilot. And we have had many examples over a very long period of time where those nurses will put pressure on the pilots to do things that they shouldn't do. You know, and typically the, the, uh, the EMS helicopters, it's flying in weather that they shouldn't. When the fog flying into fog, we just had a big car crash. They fly in fog and get in trouble, hit power lines. I hit something, and uh, oftentimes both of or everybody on the chopper dies. And uh, I wonder if this film guy was was inadvertently putting pressure on the pilot, telling him go turn around, go back. He's gone the other way. You know, chase him to get the perfect shot. And maybe they turned around and came right into the drone. You know, because uh, they were clearly to the left of the drone when that vehicle turned to the right. So the helicopter had to overtake the drone in, in some form. So that, that probable cause was a close one to say it the way they did. I don't know why they blamed the drone, because they should have they should have called out both of them. And well, they called out the organizers, but they should have called out both of them. But where was this visual the the observer for the drone, where was he? Could he, could he see the helicopter? That helicopter was so damn low, he may not have been able to see him. You know, and this, and that, in my last word, and this will be the last word, but I often talk about putting your head on the swivel today. You know, in this case, they had to know they were going to be flying in a mi mixed vehicle area, right? So you got two different flying machines in the same area, the pilots should have been putting their head on a really fast swivel to make sure that they were immune from them. Or, you know, even go back further, the pilots probably should have told the organizer, where's the drone pilots? We need to set some ground rules. And they, they weren't interested in the beginning either. The organizer wasn't interested they, and the chopper pilots weren't interested. And the drone pilots were excluded. So a total recipe for disaster. So I guess my last word to everybody is pay attention. And as Todd said, you see something you're not comfortable with, open your mouth. Raise the bar. You know, say, hey, I'm not flying in this until we get a, get all our, our P's and Q's in order. Crazy. Terrible waste. Terrible waste. Well, Todd. You dug out a good drone one. And I'll dig out some other good ones too. Not necessarily drones, but uh, you know, we have a few more in the hopper and uh, we hope that uh, uh, we we keep them coming. Yeah. And, and I'll just say a, a last word on, on the, the reports that we pull up. 
It is incredibly difficult to find reports that have enough detail for us to pull out the facts to make flying safer. You know, you can all talk about the probable cause and, you know, most of the time it's already up here, 5,000 foot view. But when you want to get down where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and find those little nuggets that can improve safety, you've got to have reports with good detail in them. And that's what we're seeing missing in so many reports today. It seems like that's the norm instead of the exception. So it's unfortunate. And as we go through the reports from the Canadians and from the Europeans, uh, they still have the detail in their reports. So that's why you'll oftentimes see us doing the helicopter reports from Europe right? and some airplane accidents from Canada because they, they do put the details in their reports. All right, thank you all. Please, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.